many of the best stories start off their lives written in another language, and I've always been amazed by those literary and linguistic experts who quietly get on with the job of translating them. Thanks to their efforts, great stories are brought to new audiences of book lovers all over the world. Next week, I'll be talking to Rosie Hedger, who translates books from Norwegian into English. Some of her translations have gone on to win awards and have been featured on BBC Radio 4's Book at Bedtime. If, like me, you'd love to know how a translator sets about doing what they do, keep an eye open for episode 8. I'll post a reminder on social media. This week, I thought I'd take a closer look at another important aspect of children's literature, the illustrations and cover designs that, more often than not, are the first thing we encounter when we pick up a book. Christopher Robin, Pooh Bear, Ratty, Toad, Willy Wonka, The BFG, The Gruffalo, Meg and Mog. You might be forgiven for thinking that the author who conceived these iconic characters and the illustrator who drew them are one and the same person. I've often made that mistake. Of course, some of our favourite stories are also illustrated by the author. Beatrix Potter is a fine example of that. Her depictions of Benjamin Bunny, Jemima Puddleduck and Flopsy Mopsy and Cottontail match perfectly with the stories she tells. The same is true of Georges Remy's Tintin books. Better known by his pen name, Hershey, Remy created 24 comic strip albums between 1929 and 1976, based on the escapades of a young Belgian news reporter and his faithful dog, Snowy. Hershey's Adventures of Tintin! His drawings of the black-bearded Captain Haddock and the bowler-hatted Thompson twins readily spring to mind whenever I think about Tintin. Asterix is another fine example, at least since 1977. Stories since then have also been written by the comic book's artist Albert Uderzo after the death of its co-creator René Goscinny all those years ago. Since the early days of children's books, there have been many illustrious illustrators who've literally made their mark. In the late 19th century, one of the most prolific was Gordon Brown. His father, who went by the name of Fizz, had famously illustrated books by Charles Dickens. On average, Fizz's son Gordon illustrated six books a year for over half a century. His beautiful pen and ink style is instantly recognisable in classic editions of works such as Robinson Crusoe, Gulliver's Travels, Rip Van Winkle and Treasure Island. Each one is executed with pen and ink, and he is said to have had a very large collection of historical artefacts to copy from to make sure his drawings were as authentic as possible. A rather different sort of illustrator back then was William Heath Robinson. Born into a family of illustrators, he created drawings for an 1897 edition of Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales and an 1899 edition of The Arabian Nights. He's best known, however, for his drawings of crazy contraptions and ridiculous inventions, machines with wheels and elaborate pulley systems. You can see some of them in The Adventures of Professor Brainstorm by Norman Hunter that I read from back in episode 3. Since the First World War, Heath Robinson's name has been synonymous with any elaborate device that achieves a very simple and mundane outcome. I reckon they must have been a big inspiration for Charlie Chaplin in his film Modern Times, and for Nick Parks when he came up with his inventions for Wallace and Gromit. Machines like the Socomatic, 
the 535 Krakovac and the Snoozatron. Oh, this'll save your legs. It's precision technology. Another hugely successful illustrator from the early 20th century was Ernest Howard Shepherd. He studied fine art and turned his hand to book illustration early on in his career. During World War I, Shepard fought in France and was highly decorated. As well as rising to the rank of acting major, he regularly sent drawings to Punch magazine back home in England. It was through his connection with Punch that he gained a commission to illustrate for the author A. A. Milne. After creating illustrations for When We Were Very Young, he went on to illustrate Alan Mills's Winnie the Pooh books. Shepard modelled Pooh Bear on a stuffed toy called Growler, belonging to his own son Graham, not on Christopher Robin's teddy bear, as you might think. Like his father, Graham grew up to be an illustrator, and so did Shepard's only daughter Mary, who went on to create the drawings for all eight books in the Mary Poppins series by P. L. Travers. One young artist who was inspired by the work of E. H. Shepard was Pauline Baines, like her hero, she studied art formally. She attended the Slade School of Fine Art in London. After submitting some of her drawings to Allen and Unwin in 1948, she was asked by the publisher to produce illustrations for a story called Farmer Giles of Ham. It was a children's story about an unlikely hero and a dragon called Chrysophylax. The author was none other than Professor John Ronald Rule Tolkien. Tolkien was so pleased with Pauline's work that he wanted her to illustrate two other books he was writing, The Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion. The publisher, however, had other plans and she didn't get the job. Pauline did create a number of Tolkien's cover designs, maps and posters later on, and she and her husband became close friends of the Tolkien's and went on several vacations with them. They were also amongst a small group of just 12 people invited to his funeral in 1973. After seeing Pauline Baines's illustrations for Farmer Giles of Ham, another Oxford professor and close friend of Tolkien's, Clive Staples Lewis, asked her to create drawings for his books about a magical world called Narnia. She accepted the job and illustrated all seven titles in the series. Despite his overall praise of her work, Lewis was critical of some aspects of it. He disliked the way she drew animals and wondered if she might benefit from a visit to London Zoo to study them more closely. Baines never quite gelled with C.S. Lewis as she had done with Tolkien. The relationship may also have been strained by the fact that she'd been given a one-off commission of £100 per title rather than a royalty that would have probably earned her a vast fortune. Two of my favourite stories, Stig of the Dump and The Land of Green Ginger, were illustrated by the artist Edward Ardizzone. As well as writing and illustrating many of his own books, such as the stories of Tim, Charlotte and Ginger, he created dozens of drawings for others, including a retelling of Tom Sawyer and Hook Finn, as well as a new edition of Peter Pan, and stories about a very ugly nanny called Nurse Matilda, who is better known to children these days as Nanny McPhee. Ardizzone is a master of characterisation, and I love his cross-hatching and shading. He makes it look so simple, but if you ever give it a go, you'll discover that it's devilishly hard to do. The quirky drawings of author and illustrator Ted Geisel are instantly recognisable. Most readers know him better as Dr. Zeus, or Dr. Zeus, as it should be pronounced. 
After publishing his first children's book in 1937, Ted Geisel took some time out when World War II got in the way and then returned to the task in hand by writing and illustrating a whole host of popular titles starting in the early 1950s. Books about an elephant called Horton who hears a who, a mean Scrooge of a miser called the Grinch, and the fabulous Cat in the Hat with his floppy red and white striped hat and red bow tie. My favourite drawing as a child was from The Cat in the Hat Comes Back, in which the cat in the hat takes off his hat, revealing a smaller version of himself standing on his head, who then removes his hat to reveal an even smaller version, who in turn removes his hat to reveal a fourth tiny cat. Geisel's work is certainly unique. He draws almost no straight lines, wildly exaggerating proportions and making everything look rather droopy. His writing is no less unique. Here's an example of what he wrote in one of his earliest books, If I Ran the Zoo, back in 1950. It's a pretty good zoo, said young Gerald McGrew, and the fellow who runs it seems proud of it too. But if I ran the zoo, said young Gerald McGrew, I'd make a few changes. That's just what I do. The lions and tigers and that kind of stuff they have up here now are not quite good enough. You see things like these in just any old zoo. They're awfully old-fashioned. I want something new. So I'd open each cage, I'd unlock every pen, let the animals go and start over again. And somehow or other I think I could find some beasts of a much more unusual kind. Young Gerald goes on to discover some very unusual beasts indeed, such as the thwirl, whose legs are snarled up in a terrible snarl, and he catches some chugs, some keen-shooter, mean-shooter, bean-shooter bugs. He goes to the African island of Yerka and brings back a tizzle-topped, tufted mazurka. He brings back a gusset, a gherkin and a gasket, and also a gooch from the wilds of Nantasket. He hunts in the jungles of Hippanahungus and brings back a flock of wild Bipanabungus. Yes, that's what I'd do, said young Gerald McGrew. I'd make a few changes if I ran the zoo. Another of my all-time favourite illustrators is Ronald Searle, who created fabulous schoolboy splats and squiggles in Geoffrey Willan's tales of Nigel Molesworth, The Curse of St Custards. Searle's pen and ink drawings are the perfect accompaniment to Willan's laugh-out-loud prose. As you turn the pages, you come across drawings of Molesworth and his chums setting a massive bear trap for dear old Santa, aiming a 16th-century cannon at the headmaster, and operating a Heath Robinson-esque machine for writing out lines at a rate of a hundred per minute. You'll also find a gallery of crusty old schoolmasters at a glance, as well as a table of grips and torches that the masters might probably employ. It's hard to imagine a time when Roald Dahl's books were not illustrated by Quentin Blake in his oft-imitated slapdash style of scratchy lines and pale colour washes. But, prior to 1979 and The Enormous Crocodile, other illustrators like Faith Jacks and Nancy Burkett were given the task. After the collaboration with Blake had been firmly established, he retrospectively went back and created drawings of Charlie Bucket and Willy Wonka and Danny and James and the Giant Peach. Although, in some way, I do think it's a bit of a shame. I quite like them just the way they were. 
In my mind, it's a bit like casting Johnny Depp as Willy Wonka in the film Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. In my book, Gene Wilder is really the only Willy Wonka that there can be. I'm a trifle deaf in this ear. Speak a little louder next time. Some time ago, I was thrilled to attend a talk by Axel Scheffler at the London Book Fair. Although he'd lived and worked in England since the early 1980s, he still had a German accent, and I realised when he was introduced that I'd been mistakenly calling him Alex and not Axel for years. Anyway, that's besides the point. It's easy to see why his drawings of the Gruffalo and that fearless little mouse are so well loved, and I'm a big fan of all those cute creatures he creates for other Julia Donaldson books like The Highway Rat. My favourite picture is about halfway through where they're all dancing around a campfire beneath the light of a silvery moon. Over the last couple of years I've also grown to admire the work of Swedish author and illustrator Jacob Vegelius. His children's book The Murderer's Ape and graphic novel The Legend of Sally Jones are beautifully illustrated with drawings of characters and scenes from the story. Before turning his hand to writing children's books, Jacob was a successful commercial artist. His dotty style of shading is very distinctive and his illustrations are fabulous, too good for beer bottles and throwaway food packaging. There are so many great illustrators who over the years have brought books to life in ways that perfectly complement the written word. Michael Rosen, Morris Sendak, Arthur Rackham, Chris Riddle and Johnny Duddle. The list is enormous and I could go on, but best leave it there, eh? Thanks for listening and by way of a reminder, next week I'll be talking to Rosie Hedger about the art of book translation. Until then, good luck getting your children to surf less and read more. Perhaps you could tell them about the 1970s kids TV show, why don't you switch off your television set and go do something less boring instead? Yes, that really was the title. One of the best ideas is to simply pick up a good book, one with a cool cover design, I might add. Thank you.